All right, welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we have discussions with individuals who are building accessible businesses or products, advocating for inclusion, or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but rather give you an opportunity to amplify your voice, ideas, and learn strategies to scale our impact and help other businesses become more accessible. Today, we're joined by Mary McManus, a mother, athlete, author, motivational speaker, and I'm sure much more. Mary, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Brendan. This is really exciting and congratulations on launching this podcast. Thank you, thank you. So to tell the story of your incredible feats now, uh, we have to go back to the 1950s. Uh, Is it okay if I take a, a section of your book? Absolutely, please do. So Mary is the author of the book, The Adventures of Runner Girl 1953, uh, which I read over the last week ahead of this discussion. Uh, She mentions that the deck was stacked against her. Without warning on June 3rd, 1959, I dropped to the ground in kindergarten class. Three years after contracting paralytic polio, shortly after coming out of my leg brace, my father became alcoholic. Nine years of emotional, physical, and sexual assaults followed until he died by suicide when I was 17. In December of 2006, I was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome and told to prepare the, spe- the rest of my life in a wheelchair. When you first got this diagnosis as a child, how did it affect your childhood? Well, from that moment on, nothing was the same um, because, well, the first part was that I was initially paralyzed from the neck down. And then I started getting some movement back on my right side, but it took a very long time to get movement back on my left side. I was in a long leg brace. So basically I I missed the end of kindergarten year. And then um, when I started back in September, I was completely different because I was, as I call it, lugging um, a full leg brace that um, went into red polio shoes that, by the way, they have them in the Smithsonian. They were um, they were the shoes that, that people who contracted polio wore so that the leg brace could fit into it. So I went back to school on crutches and a leg brace. Um, <clears throat> I was going for physical therapy three times a week and my physical therapist was an angel. Um, but from that point on, I really didn't have what one would call a childhood. Um, I, I did have moments of very special moments, um, one in particular when I went to a camp that embraced all abilities. Uh, the first summer camp I went to did not, and it was a really very painful summer. But then um, my polio doc referred me and my family to this wonderful camp that's still in existence today where they really embrace all abilities, Brendan. And I had a camp counselor who was an angel and he encouraged me to compete in the end of summer Olympics. And I really was rather hesitant because I said, look, you know, I really can't compete with the other kids. And he said, well, there are only two other people competing in the butterfly. And so you'll be guaranteed a place on the podium. And he trained me. Um, I was terrified to jump off the starting block. And um, it was just a, a really magical experience. And I, he said, don't look around. He said, you're going to finish last. We know that. But the courage lies in just being out there and, and competing. And I did. And uh, I finished third. Um, and I had a bronze plaque for it. So 
that was a shining moment in my childhood. But overall, it was just I, I was fighting for my survival growing up in a house with my dad was alcoholic, my mom was addicted to prescription pain medication. Um, so what I did to survive Brendan was I honed my intellect. And that's how I got through. Um, and kind of just left my body behind. Yeah. Were, uh, did I read in the book, were you valedictorian in high school? Yeah. So, so how, how did your physical disability affect your uh, schooling experience or your intellectual development? Intellectually, I was completely intact. And I worked very hard to really hone that. I mean, I'd be up in the middle of the night studying. Um, I had a chalkboard in my room. I'd write notes and I became um, obsessive compulsive about my schoolwork, but it enabled me to survive. Uh, and it was the one area where I received positive feedback and I felt some self-esteem. And fortunately, I had some wonderful teachers. But as far as gym class, just forget it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it ac academics, probably also you were able to can kind of control your own destiny, whereas your, your polio diagnosis took some of the physical capacity away. You weren't able to, uh, you had more control and ownership over your, uh, for your academics. So I'm sure that was empowering. Absolutely. That's a very good point, Brendan. Yeah. So it was, it was the one place where I could succeed, excel, and you're right, having control because um, with my body, um, I, I was very, very blessed with a physical therapist and a physiatrist who specialized in the rehab of polio patients. Uh, so that was, that was vital and I'm so grateful. I, he made sure that I didn't end up with scoliosis and they did everything they could to get me uh, to walk again and to be able to function at my highest capacity despite the damage from the polio virus. Yeah. And you say that counselor encouraged you to kind of swim your own race. And in your book, I believe you, uh, you thank Dave McGilvery for giving you the opportunity to run your own race. So that seems to kind of be a theme and it's a theme in inclusion and adaptive sports in general, like do the best with what you have. And when you can do better, do better. Um, and that's, uh, I think that might be a Maya Angelou quote, but that, that just, is, it seems to be a sentiment that's pretty consistently echoed kind of in my industry or in my world, at least. Yes. And I'm so excited that you're going to be putting out that book uh, because that's, that's a theme in the book, you know, about how you can enable everybody, uh, if you're putting on a road race, to be able to, um, to, to shine and to be the best they can be uh, and not be concerned with running another person's race or uh, having to uh, and and the most important thing is that they can excel in their own way and that's one thing that i learned throughout this journey and through the sport of running is that i'm not competing with anybody else it's just me and uh a lot of times that's worked to my disadvantage when I start going after PR after PR, which is how I blew out my knee uh, in 2014 now. But be that as it may, you know, it's it's just really a joy to be able to be a part of this incredible community. Yeah, I think all of us are uh, guilty of that with running. Once you start getting times in your head, it's, it's hard to dial it back in. And it's so like... Uh quantitative sport you can either run a certain time or you can't so it's like 
become fixated on these things. But it was super helpful to read your text as I was editing the book uh, because like your lived experiences kind of gave me a different perspective as to how I could accommodate uh, maybe some of the runners that were moving a little slower. So like you and I had talked about um, one of my concerns with our past race this past uh, June was I didn't, I wanted everyone to kind of start at the same time, but then it, it kind of ended up that some of our slower runners that took 75, 80 minutes to do the 5k, people were already kind of leaving by the time they finished. So I was like, huh, well that was kind of anticlimactic. So maybe like you mentioned, like maybe giving them that half hour head start uh, so they can still get the celebratory nature of finishing with crowds and, and congratulatory. And like some of those stories were like the best of my participants, like someone post stroke doing his first 5k. Uh, but and like, and we kind of missed some of that stuff because uh, we had them all start at the same time. So I think it's definitely a great idea to give people the opportunity to start a half hour early uh, if they choose to. So but it's kind of like, I guess with inclusion and universal design, it's, it's just giving people the opportunity to make those decisions, not making the decisions on their behalf. So at least giving them the capacity to start early if they want to. Yes, absolutely, Brendan. And that's, you know, I, I was really, um, when I ran the Boston Marathon, I was, I was really, really anxious about the six hour time limit. And I talked to our team coach at Spalding and he said, wait, aren't you getting an early start? I said, what, <laughs> what do you mean an early start? And now of course, Brendan, the, the regulations are very different for early starts and also for mobility impaired runners. So I feel very blessed that I had that opportunity to run Boston because the regs have changed since then, but be that as it may, um, we got an early start and it was the best thing that could have happened because um, I was out there with the field. And if if I wouldn't have, um, you know, I would have missed the experience that is Boston. And um, have you done Boston, Brendan? Uh, so Jacob and I just qualified about two months ago. Um, so my team Hoyt duo uh, partner and I, so we ran the Martha's Vineyard Marathon uh, May 20th this year, and uh, we finished in two hours and 55 minutes, which um, qualified me for my age category. So Jacob and I will run this April. So we're looking forward to it. How exciting. Oh yeah. my goodness. That's great. Yep. So I know they do waves, right? So it's mobility or it's hand cycles, push rim mobility. Are they all grouped together or are they separate? Now or then when I ran it? When I guess, yeah, I guess when you ran it. Yeah. So in 2009, um, we started with mobility impaired and then the, um, the push room, everybody else started after us. So we went off first. Um, and I remember uh, seeing Ernst Van Dyke whiz by me, <laughs> which was really thrilling because he was the captain of our Spalding team. Um, for people who may not know, uh, Ernst Van Dyke is 11 time now or 12, I'm not sure, but yeah. Um, and he was the captain of our team for Spalding and he gave us a, a speech at our pre-race dinner and he said a disability doesn't end a life, it's just a new beginning. And it was really a thrill, um, you know, to be out on the race course and then Brian Hall passed us and, you know, all the running grades and you're like, oh, I'm out here. And I, I said to our coach, Dominic, who got me the early start, I said, well, what do we do when they start 
when the crush of runners come, like, do we have to go over to the side? Like, what do we do? And he said, you have every right to be out there just as much as they do. So you just, you know, just do your thing. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the Van Dyke quote, because actually when I read it in your book, I was also at the time working on a presentation uh, on like models of disability. So like the medical model of disability versus the social model versus charity model. And, and I actually took that quote from Van Dyke that you included in your book and I added it to my slide deck because that's like uh, the charity model is kind of like you have someone with a disability and you have their support staff and the person with the disability is meant to be pitied or you're supposed to feel bad for them and you're supposed to praise the support. And that's always like, that was actually kind of one of my early experiences with inclusion was it always kind of felt weird when I was being like praised for coaching Special Olympics or I was being like praised for being a a peer buddy and best buddies. Because to me, it was like, you're kind of marginalizing the people I'm working with by saying that like, oh, I'm so nice for being friendly to them. It always just felt weird to me. Um, So it it was Ernst uh, Van Dyke's quote on his lived experience of his life beginning after disability is a really important concept to like communicate to people that not all disabilities are perceived poorly by those with disabilities. And for many people, their life changes drastically after for the better. Mm -hmm. Oh, I would, you know, you were asking about my childhood and on the one hand, you know, oh, it would have been nice to experience a, <laughs> what a you know normal childhood is like, whatever that is, Brendan, by the way. But having said that, um, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world because I wouldn't be the woman I am today. And the same thing with the diagnosis of post-polio syndrome. I would not be who I am today had I not had that, that life-changing diagnosis where I discovered so much about myself. I started writing poetry and I now have this incredible message for people that you're not your diagnosis. And, uh, you know, so often, Brendan, people take on their diagnosis. And I, I, it's such a blessing that, you know, you work with people who've had these different um, things happen to their bodies because they discover strengths that they never knew they had. And I I take issue with the message that I received and I, I really hope and pray that the post-polio community and also other progressive neuromuscular diseases really change their philosophy. There, there was a philosophy of if I used it, I would lose it. And that was so counterintuitive to what I was experiencing. And initially I needed to conserve energy. I had to go back into a leg brace. I had to use a cane. I did have to leave my career because the stress was too much. But on the other side of it, I was so blessed that I didn't stay at the post-polio clinic at Spalding because I found an incredible earth angel of a physical therapist at Spalding downtown near my office who said, um, no, you don't have to spend the rest of your life in a wheelchair. Let's get you, let's, let's reconnect the mind and body. Um, and she was phenomenal. I'm still friends with her today. She has a private practice up in Maine. So, it, you know, that's, that's such a powerful purpose for me now to be able to say, okay, you were given this diagnosis. It looks grim. Um, I had difficulty swallowing. I had difficulty breathing. The lymph from polio returned. Um, they told me I needed to go on oxygen at night. And I took 
uh, like I took the leg brace because that helped to ease and conserve some energy and get me back on the path. But um, the sleep apnea machine, no thank you. Um, I did go on a semi-soft diet because I was aspirating food into my lungs. But then I eventually, through harnessing the power of the mind-body connection and also doing some of the suggestions, like I was on a semi-soft food diet and I had to do a chin tuck when I swallowed. And I did all that um, initially. And then I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> I, I cannot embody the person that I am today. And that's where writing poetry uh, came into play, where I started visualizing something very different than what I was actually experiencing. And I knew about the mind-body connection from Dr. Bernie Siegel. I don't, are you familiar with his work? Oh, he's incredible, Brendan. He talks about the power of the mind-body connection and how we can heal. Um, and he gives an example, and this is what really inspired me after the diagnosis of post-polio syndrome. There was a woman named Evie McDonald who contracted um, polio as a child, and then she was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And she decided that she wasn't gonna die hating her body. And so she started sitting before a full-length mirror in her wheelchair, and she started loving, loving every part of her body. And she started visualizing, and she started um, connecting with her body. I think she also was an abuse survivor. And she's one of the few documented cases of complete remission from ALS. And hearing that story really inspired me to start loving myself, to caring for myself. Um, and I was blessed to not only have the physical therapist, but a personal trainer who believed that uh, she was working with a Parkinson's patient who was 20 years older than I. And she said, you are way too young to not be able to get off uh, a couch or the toilet seat without assistance. So um, I've been very blessed with the people I've met. Between your initial diagnosis at five and the diagnosis of post-polio syndrome at, was it 53? Yeah. What was that 48 years like? Was post-polio syndrome on your radar? Um, did you notice yourself kind of like progressively losing motor function or anything? Or kind of, I guess, what, what encouraged you to seek out that diagnosis? Mm. So, no, I didn't know about it. I... The first time that I heard about the post-polio syndrome diagnosis, um, I had reconstructive leg surgery. Um, what happened was after I had twins, my left leg, which was the more affected polio leg, started to bow, and so my knee was bone on bone. And the surgeon that I was blessed to come across, Dr. Don Riley, when I went to see him, I had seen him for some other issues. Um, I said, what are we gonna do? I'm in a lot of pain. He said, well, you're like 38 at the time. You're way too young to have a total knee replacement. So I can offer you a femoral osteotomy. And so he did, he corrected my leg. Um, he corrected the bow in the leg and he realigned the whole leg. Um, he was also an electrical engineer before he became an orthopedist. So he developed this, which was really cool. So anyway, I'm there for my post-op visit, and this is so true to form, Brendan. He 
says, uh, McManus, we had a great relationship. He said, I need you in the office. I said, well, is it my appointment time? It's a little early. He said, no, I need your help. Long story short, there was a woman in the office who had post polio syndrome. Her husband was a veteran. He needed to do corrective surgery on her and to ease her pain. And he needed me to find services to take care of her husband because she was the caregiver. <clears throat> so that was the first time I heard about post polio syndrome. And I never really thought about it, excuse me. Um, and then I started feeling not well. Um, I noticed that I was extremely tired. I was in a lot of physical pain and I just felt I was getting weaker and weaker. And I had no idea what was going on. Um, I'd be at the VA and in between patients, I wondered, am I having a stroke? Cause I, I actually had numbness and tingling, which was from a, a disc pressing on a nerve in my cervical spine. Um, and so finally, after about 10 years, I said, okay, I, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I need to figure out what's going on. And I Googled post polio syndrome. And that's how I was led to Spalding. And I do want to say, I am so grateful to them because I did take my first steps on my healing journey there. They did offer a lot of compassion and support. I had occupational therapy. I learned a lot about energy conservation techniques. Um, but they could only take me so far because of their view of what post polio syndrome was all about. Um, they didn't believe in neuroplasticity uh, or that um, muscles and nerves can actually reconnect. I wonder if that's changed. I wonder if they've kind of made a universal change towards that approach or whether it's still consistent. Is there still a post polio clinic there? There is, there is. And um, I actually, interestingly enough, one of the physical therapists there, um, my husband and daughter hired as a personal trainer and he was great in terms of getting them back into running initially. Um, my daughter had a, a health care concern and so he was great getting them back. But um, when we were at the, uh, what was it, the uh, Providence, Rhode Island half marathon and he was there to cheer them on and I was there to cheer them on. And I could tell from talking with him that there is still very much in the cautious model because he even said to me, and God bless him, Brendan, I really, I'm not being judgmental or anything because people don't know what they don't know. But he, I, he saw my journey, but he said, you know, have you thought about using walking sticks? And I was like, why would I use walking sticks? <laughs> I mean, I, I want to get back to my running. I, you know, and he meant well, but so he's a physical therapist there. And I know um, the physiatrist there, when I went back after my knee injury in 2014, now we're, we're nine years post that, but um, when I went back after I blew out my knee, he told me I should never have started running. I should stop running. I was going to need a total knee replacement. So, um, but I'm, I'm hoping maybe somehow, some way um, that, that they will, you know, that they will change their stories. And also too, Brendan, the mindset of a, of a polio survivor is, you know, we really felt victimized by the disease, um, the way it happened and also the way society viewed polio. So, it was a hard mindset to overcome. 
Um, but yeah, my hope is that at some point they're gonna, they're gonna make that shift. Yeah. You mentioned in the book having an initial conversation with a doctor who kind of attributed your symptoms to like PTSD and like kind of that's all in your head. Um, yeah. What was that like? And then maybe can you juxtapose that to like the validation of receiving a diagnosis? Like was was having a label to it useful? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I do. I did suffer from symptoms of post-traumatic stress. There's no two ways about it. Um, but I needed something a lot more. And it, it was so validating to have somebody say to me, listen, you know, your body is experiencing the residual effects of having contracted childhood paralytic polio. And these are some steps we can take. Um, you know, the, the difficulty swallowing was very alarming. And to have a speech therapist do a swallow test and to say, those muscles are deconditioned and that's why you're aspirating food into your lungs. Here's what you can do. Uh, to bring some relief. So yes, um, the, the fact that there was something very real going on in my body um, that could be addressed um, and something completely separate from the polio, which is something that um, the physiatrist discovered at the post-polio clinic was I had a disc pressing on a nerve in my neck and he sent me to a cervical spine doctor who to this day I call my magic, my master magician, um, and I had trigger injections. That was causing the tingling sensation into my face, down my arm, and also the severe um, radiating pain. And so it was like, oh my God, there are like things we can do to help the body um, to heal. So yes, it was a tremendous relief. It's probably an interesting um, kind of like proposition though, because you're you finally get that diagnosis, which is very reassuring, but then you're then connected to all of these professionals who kind of put limitations on you because of that diagnosis. So it's kind of, I guess, I don't know, a, it's a positive, but then there's also to a degree a negative component to it. And there might be some people who, when they, they might take all that medical advice verbatim and not explore any alternative methods. So I wonder, uh, kind of what the best uh, approach towards addressing that is, but no, that's that's a very important point, Brendan. Because initially, I immersed myself in the Western medicine model, um, and even after I blew out my knee, I went back for a minute to the Western medicine model, and then I was blessed to find a chiropractor. So. I think, uh, and I went back in 2014 because I needed to know, okay, what's going on in my knee joint? What's going on in my leg? Um, and one of the things that the physiatrist said to me was, um, well, the MRI shows that your gastroc muscle is gone. It atrophied from the polio. There's nothing we can do about that. Well, fast forward to meeting this incredible chiropractor who said, well, you can do gastroc strengthening exercises. We're going to use KT tape and you can actually grow a new muscle. Um, we don't have to stay stuck with the notion that it's atrophied and it's gone. And you see this a lot in your work, I'm sure, in terms of especially stroke survivors, right? Yeah, it's, it's been some tough conversations where 
I don't want to put limits on what their recovery is going to look like. And it's beyond my scope of practice to predict those things anyway. I'm just a personal trainer, strength and conditioning coach. But like when I sometimes hear uh, one of them say like, oh, when am I going to be able to do X, Y, Z? Like, is this ever going to be back to quote unquote normal? Uh, or they commiserate that they're frustrated that they have to do all this exercise and rehab. And I just try to tell them like, listen, everyone has to exercise to stay healthy, whether you're doing rehab exercises or you're immersed within a traditional group class. Like it's just part of being the healthiest version of yourself. And we, we try to just look at how functions affected. So we identify mm-hmm. a specific goal they want to work on. So for you, it was running the marathon. Uh, for one of my clients that's he wants to ride a bike across the country so it's oh, like wow. what what are the skill sets and what are the physical qualities we need to be able to bike across the country and it's improving his cardiovascular health that's being able to stabilize on a bike for long enough it's not necessarily that he might have some hemiplegia and one of his hands are affected by his stroke like that's obviously relevant but it doesn't necessarily have to prevent him from doing and achieving that goal so um, it's like you, you were referring to the Western medical model and we compare that to like the social model of disability where someone's not necessarily disabled by a specific impairment, but more so by an environment that doesn't account for their differences or like a lack of support in the right ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just like a perspective we try to communicate with our coaches is you need to understand the diagnosis because that's going to influence how you train someone but it's not necessarily the impairments that are present in the person that's preventing them from like accessing our gym. It's how our gym is structured uh, that needs to accommodate them. So that's just uh, just a perspective that I think it kind of needs to be carried forth to make like all businesses more inclusive and accessible, I guess. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. That's, that's critical. And so often too, um, you know, the, the, the first race, five mile race that I ran, well, the very first race I ran was a neighborhood race, the Cora pub. And that was, you know, so friendly and everybody was celebrating the fact that, oh, this is my first road race. And, and little did I know, I thought, you know, all races are like that. Well, then I got to the marathon sports five miler and it was an evening race and it was very hot. And, um, we had trouble finding the race cause it had moved, et cetera. So um, everybody just, it was a very fast field, Brendan, and they all took off. And one woman said, oh, I'm not going to be last. And I, and I was beside myself and it was an evening race and I was still in the very early phases of, you know, getting, getting, learning how to run basically. And I was crying and I was sweating and I didn't know like where the tears ended and the sweat began. My husband stayed with me. Um, my daughter went ahead um, because she wanted to run her race, which was great. And also um, there was one woman who made some snarky comment. And so she took off and <laughs> she got her, her Irish up, if you will, because uh, for mom. Anyway, but my point here is that, um, you know, the the um my mindset during that time was what am i doing i don't belong here and fortunately when i crossed the finish line marathon sports knew my story because they fitted me with my first pair of running shoes and they celebrated me like i broke the tape and the the they blew the air horn and fortunately there was staff still out on the course 
But had they not known my story, had they not kept the water stops open, had the volunteers left, it would have been a total disaster. And I don't know if I would have had the courage to go on and train and run Boston. So you're absolutely right. It's so important. I mean, endurance sports have the capacity to be probably the most inclusive and accessible sport there is. Like, there's really nothing that would prevent someone from a wheelchair competing alongside you, competing alongside me. Like, I think it's just when you're designing a race or when you're trying to put together an event like this, just understanding all the different situations. And like you said, making sure that water stop stays open, making sure there's people to celebrate the finish, like giving everyone the same treatment and the same opportunity to experience like everything that running provides. You also said something very important earlier, Brendan, about, you know, everybody has to exercise and train. And one of the things that I felt early on was that I knew I was going to be in pain. Um, you know, with post polio syndrome, there there is um, a lot of pain that's involved. And I decided early on that if I were going to experience pain, I'm going to experience it on the sign of healing and health um, because there's pain of atrophy. And a lot of what I was experiencing early on was the pain of atrophy. And so it's so important for people to make choices for themselves and everybody's different. But I know for me, you know, I knew there was going to be pain. So yeah. why not and do not, it? And not to, not to diminish that experience in any way, but like, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone training for a marathon that doesn't experience some of the highs and lows of pains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's like, and I think Jesse and in, in the first podcast we recorded, um, when she was like talking about the immediate time after her accident and she said, oh, there's good days and bad days, but people without a spinal cord injury have good days and bad days too. So mm -hmm. it's like, how are you going to respond to those bad days? Uh, so those are like, those are the messages that I think we really want to kind of perpetuate and communicate to people. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, there's that gets no... away the victim mindset. Yeah. And there's, you know what, there's no, like, there's no separation between the life that that I live, um, having experienced polio and then having been diagnosed with post polio syndrome, and somebody who hasn't, you know, there are struggles, there are highs, there are lows. Um, I'm slower, absolutely, but you you made such a good point, and I think so often, you know, we tend to to separate and segregate, um, and and categorize but in truth you know we're we're all on this journey together uh and however it comes up for each individual person but um you know certainly don't look at me and say um well you know you've you've had this disability or whatever um and you asked a very interesting question of jesse which is how does she feel about somebody saying you inspire um, I was going to I was going to ask you the same question. <laughs> yeah. Well, that ties into this because I think a lot of times, oh my god, you lived through all of that, you're such an inspiration and you know, Jesse said it so well and and I felt the same way. I was like, yes, you know, that's that's how I feel. Um I want to be an inspiration. And yes, I inspire myself. I inspire my daughter. Um my daughter inspires me with her journey. Um and we all inspire each other. Um, 
my husband's now 71 and he's going to be running the he ran the trilogy of half marathons with my daughter um in a year for a fundraiser but my point is is that you know we can all inspire each other i love being an inspirational being inspirational to other people i just think it's so important that we have sheroes and heroes and that people say oh my god she lived through that I, and dave said it in dave mcgilvery in his review of my book then she lived through all of that what's stopping me from being the best that i can be so um yeah did it's you, a joy being have, an inspiration did you have any representation like did, was there anyone else with post polio syndrome that you kind of like looked up to or that you saw accomplishing great things well, I just got goosebumps. Um, not post polio syndrome per se, but Wilma Rudolph um, is my shiro. Do you know who she is? Uh, nope. So she had polio, and the doctor said that she would never walk. <clears throat> and her, I don't know how many siblings she had, Brendan, but they all came and they massaged her legs, and her mother prayed and said, you will walk again. And um, not only did she walk again, she started playing basketball, and then she went on to track and field, and she won five Olympic gold medals. I don't know how I I haven't heard that name then. Oh, you should Google her. My my personal trainer, I had a really tough run, a training run for Boston. And I said, oh, Janine, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And she said, you're going home and you're Googling Wilma Rudolph. And I did. I still get goosebumps thinking about that. So, yeah. Um, But, you know, it's interesting that I don't know any other post-polio people who are out there. I do have friends with MS um, who are doing epic things, Parkinson's disease, um, but I don't, in terms of representation for post-polio, but for polio, um, Wilma Rudolph, definitely. Do they present in a similar way, post-polio and MS and Parkinson's? Uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And especially with the message of progression. Yeah, um, yeah. My dad was so, diagnosed with MS when I was in kindergarten, um, but he has had a really good and fruitful 21, 22 years since that diagnosis. But I know that's not always the case for every case of MS. Uh, we have a couple of clients with MS and their disease has progressed in various ways. And um, I guess similar to other diagnoses, it might depend on the location of the lesions and the size of yes. the lesions. Do you know what the diagnostic process is for polio, post-polio syndrome? Well, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So there's actually no, like with MS, they have the MRI and they look for the plaque with, I'm not sure how they diagnose Parkinson's, um, but um, so that's MS, Parkinson's. Um, and for post-polio, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So they did extensive lab work, I mean, eight tubes of blood, to rule out any other possible causes. The only thing that came back abnormal was the muscle function test in, in the blood work. And then they also used something called an EMG, which they really need to find a better way because that's... <laughs> Um, have your any of your your clients had EMGs? 
Uh, I'm sure they have in some capacity. I, it's not something we've talked about closely, but. Um, well, it's really awful because what they do is they test your, your nerve to muscle function and they zap you and then they turn up the zaps and, oh, it was awful. Um, they did it in my upper body. And so they discovered that there was no, um, gross effects of late effects of polio in my upper body, but I wouldn't let them do my legs. And on clinical exam, it was apparent that there was a lot of weakness in my lower extremities, left greater than right. So, but those are kind of the diagnostic tests. And then it's based on clinical exam as well as presentation of symptoms. Is there any medicine intervention for post-polio? Interesting question. There are, they, one of the things that they wanted me to take um, was called Artane for head tremors. Um, and interestingly enough, my tremors have gotten much, much better um, because of the meditation, I think because of the exercise, um, because of, you know, just really um, being convinced that you know, I can transform these late effects of polio. So they, I started the Artane and it made me really sick to my stomach. So then they said, well, we can do Botox injections. And I said, no, thank you. I'm cool. I, I can live with this. Um, so there are some medicines that help with fatigue that they also use in MS and whatnot. But, um, you know, I'll take a nap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, but yeah, our some of our clients with CP use Botox effectively uh, as well as well as uh, one of my clients with an SCI. But I, it's really different for everyone, and everyone responds differently to the medication. So my dad yes. was on a. I guess it, they're all kind of experimental interventions because there's no necessarily like a cure for MS, but. Um, when I interviewed another adaptive athlete who has MS, she said that she never tried anything. And then one of my clients tried the same medicine that my dad takes and it didn't work for her. So, um, I guess it's, it's a series of trial and error, I suppose. It is. It really is. And my friend with MS who does epic stuff, and she's actually going to be running the Hawaii Marathon, um, and she's run Boston for charity, and um, she does the Reach to the Beach and just does all this incredible stuff. Um, she actually had some IV infusions that were extremely helpful to her. And then she saw a chiropractor who specializes in MS, and that also really helped her as well. And I think, you know, whatever the best of, of East and West um, and or whether we call it East or West or holistic or whatever. But yeah, I, I think it's putting together the best of what's going to work. And for me, I just found that side effects of medicine were more harmful than any potential benefits for me. Um, I know for some people, as you mentioned, like the Botox was great. So I think whatever people can find on their healing path, use um, any and all of it. Did your diagnosis uh, affect your career path or I guess how, how do you think your childhood influenced your decision to go into social work? Oh, that was absolutely, um, you know, I, I was healing myself while I was healing others. 
And I was, I majored in public relations and then I worked at the BU Counseling Center and doing their public relations and the director said, you have a real gift um, with the students who come in here. And he said, I really think you should go into counseling. And I said, oh, you mean I need counseling? He said, no. <laughs> he said, you should become a counselor. So the quickest route was social work. Um, and I worked initially with adolescents and that wasn't a good fit. And then I did some inpatient psychiatric work and then ended up at the VA. Um, and in terms of um, my career path, um, I, I had to end it with the diagnosis because I needed to take care of myself. And they also said um, the OT, the occupational therapist and the physical therapist, um, even my angel of a physical therapist who said, you're not going to end in a wheelchair, but she put on a, put me on a biofeedback machine and said, look at what the stress is doing to you physically. And then you've got the, the emotional stress. And, you know, I couldn't push my veterans around in a wheelchair any longer because I needed one. And so, um, you know, I knew it was time. And I, I always said, Brendan, that if ever there were the day that I could not give my veterans 100% and their families, that I would, I would leave. So I was three years shy of retirement, but I took out my whole retirement account, um, which actually was a godsend because then the market crashed. So I had my retirement account and I took that leap of faith and said, I've got to heal my life. I've got to take care of me. Um, but I, I do cherish the memories from when I was able to serve those who served. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I we we hope that the audience for the podcast is, I mean, anyone really, but uh, a lot of the work that we do is more within the fitness space. And you mentioned in the book having an angelic personal trainer. Um, and I was curious, kind of, what characteristics made her so effective for you, and like how that can be applied by other people in the health and fitness industry. Oh, that's a great question, Brendan. Well, the biggest thing was um, I met her through a friend and we were actually talking about her in-home personal training business and, um, and this business networking international that she belonged to. And so we were talking about how I could promote. I had a little greeting card business when I left the VA. We were talking about my business, but in the back of my mind, I thought, I wonder if she can help me. So um, she said, because I was so bored with my repetitive exercises from Spalding. And so after we got through talking about this business networking international, I said, do you think you could help me? And her, her response was from Henry Ford, whether you think you can't or you think you can, you're right. So right off the bat, I was like, okay, you know, that the fact that she believed that people can get stronger, that people can go farther, and the fact that she said to me that I was too young to not be able to get off a couch or get off of the toilet seat without assistance, or that I needed a tub chair to take a shower, and she or to use my leg brace and a, a cane to be able to walk and not even to be able to enjoy being in my physical body. So she held that faith for me, um, which was fantastic. 
total non-judgment. When she did the initial assessment, I couldn't pass it. And, you know, they, uh, she did the BMI, she did everything, no judgment whatsoever. She said, okay, this is where you are today. We've got our baseline. And then six months later, and she worked with me and she, um, she just the faith that I didn't have to be that deconditioned was a very, very powerful healing force for me. And um, she also gave me things to do in between sessions. And after um, six months, we did the initial assessment again and I passed it. And that was really exciting. And she asked me what my next goals were. Now, probably most, this is very, this is extremely unique. I'm sure most personal trainers might not have had the same reaction that she did when she asked me my next goals. And I said, maybe take a dance class because I took ballet as a child. Um, I want to come out of my leg brace. I just want to take a walk outside and feel free in my body. And she was writing everything down. And I said, I, I need different exercises. I, I get bored. I think most people do. And so she was getting ready to leave. And I said, wait, I have one more goal. And I just said it. I said, I want to run the Boston Marathon. It didn't go through my head. It didn't, it came, it fell out of my mouth from my soul. And it was just something that I felt called to do. She could have said, uh, Mary, you've never run a day in your life. You're in your leg brace. Um, why don't we start out with a 5K? And she said, you're going to need a pair of running shoes. It's like hold, holding people to high expectations and also catering things to their specific goals and not just your biases, I guess, as a trainer. Yeah. Yeah. So, and Brendan, that's crucial. Not having a bias. Don't judge. You know, she didn't say, well, you know, you don't have a runner's body or, you know, you can't run or any of that. Um, she just had total faith and she had coached another uh, person who did not have any physical challenges, but um, she coached her. She'd never run a day in her life. And this woman went on to run the Boston Marathon. Um, and so the fact that, that she did have these wonderful expectations of mine and was able to embrace that. And then she also trained my husband and my daughter because they said, you're not going to do this alone. They also didn't think I was really going to do it, Brendan. It was sort of a, oh yeah, well, wink, wink, we'll go along with you. Um, so those are, you know, those are very important qualities. And also just her caring, her compassion. Um, and she had a great sense of humor. Um, and uh, the first time she took me on hill training, we have a huge hill in our neighborhood. And I said, uh, wait, I, I think it's too soon for hill training. She said, you're going to have a lot of hills to run. And she said, you know, let's just do it. And at first, you know, there were times when I wondered, was she pushing me too hard, too fast? But then I realized I was training for Boston. So um, she engendered a sense of trust in her judgment. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I wonder what has to be changed to raise people's expectations of those with disabilities. That's where I think like that question I asked Jesse, like, do you like being inspirational? Uh, I guess maybe the root cause of that question in my head is that I think sometimes 
people with disabilities doing kind of rudimentary tasks gets praised and goes viral and it it inadvertently makes people expect less of someone with a disability because people are getting praised for doing something pretty basic oh that must just be the baseline um so that's where it's like walking the tight line of like an inspiration narrative versus someone doing something actually inspirational like you it's like how can we recondition the general public to expect more because uh, that's where i think one thing we do pretty well is we treat all of our clients whether they have a disability or not in the same way we hold them to high expectations um, we cater programs to their specific goals uh, but I don't know if that's commonplace, but I wonder what has to be done for it to become more common. Well, one of the things I, as I mentioned to you when I gave feedback about the, the book that's going to come out, is that when you hold somebody to low expectations, first of all, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But the other thing is, um, I was in a class at Spalding, and I don't even know how I found my way there. But it was for people who um, had challenges that were um, far greater than mine. But it was also the way, like, it wasn't, okay, so, um, oh, Mary, you look like you could do this. You know, and, and it, making it an inclusive experience rather than addressing the needs of the people with the, the least... Um, ability at that moment, because it's always changing and growing. But I think it is a mindset. And I think the biggest part of that mindset is to see capability, is to see possibility. And what's the worst that happens? So somebody doesn't achieve their goal? Well, they, what is it, shoot for the stars? The, you know, um, aim for the moon, you'll get a star or whatever. Um, but, but that's what it is. Like, you know, what's the, what's the harm in failure too? And how do we even register failure? But I think, you know what it is, Brendan, I think the core thing that needs to change in Western medicine, in the way things are approached is fear. I think, and that's where Jesse really addressed that. You know, when she talked about when she went back to being um, an orthodontist assistant and, you know, she talked about how, yeah, sometimes something would happen with a patient and I go in, I change my clothes. So what? Um, but she's out there and she's doing it. And I think that fear factor, you know, I can't begin to tell you the messages of fear I received. You need a cane with an ice grip because if you fall, you're going to fracture your hip and then it's all going to be over. And I'm like, well, guess what, guys? I, I had several falls while running. None of it on the ice, by the way. But, you know, uneven pavement or whatever. Um, I had one fall um, while training for the Bermuda Half Marathon. It was in summer and there was a, a tree root. And I landed, like, I did a face plan, my knees, my hips actually hit the pavement. Now, I was told that I had osteoporosis and that, you know, basically um, there was nothing they could do because bone density doesn't come back. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it does. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, and again, we're not giving medical advice. And I, I, I know that's very important, Brendan, a big disclaimer. This is my story. But I think we need to take the fear factor out of things 
because truthfully, what's the worst that can happen? And so what? If I went out, I fractured a hip, it'll heal. The body has tremendous capacity to heal and to grow. Yeah, and it's like normalizing disability. The more people see your story, the more people that listen to Jesse's story, the more they'll just begin to recognize disability amongst the like general public and stuff and they just they just see it as another characteristic of an individual instead of a something that should segregate them yes oh that that's perfect yes segregation that was the word i was looking for yeah yeah i think um i would love to wrap up with this this quote that you have in the book um you say i can no longer be a slave to my past i'm running my own race each training run is an opportunity to learn more about myself mind body and spirit Every race where I finish last reminds me to celebrate who I am, to celebrate my courage, faith, determination, and to let go of arbitrary measures of success. I think that purpose uh, like perfectly encompasses a lot of the things that we're after. Uh, we want to give everyone the opportunity to run their race or participate in an activity that they love, uh, that they're passionate about. And uh, hopefully these conversations can begin to kind of change the narrative a little bit, uh, demonstrate to people what individuals with disabilities are capable of doing when they have the race support system in place. And maybe it will encourage someone to be that support system. Uh, so someone mm -hmm. else in, in your situation can benefit from, uh, from their guidance and their help. So, uh, Mary, we really appreciate you coming on today and, and sharing your story. Uh, we'll definitely link to your poetry and your books in the show notes. And uh, as well as your personal domain, your website as well. Uh, we hope wherever your running journey takes you next, uh, you have an incredible experience and you meet fantastic people like you uh, discuss in the book. Uh, that's been my favorite part of being involved with the running community. It's just the people that I've met over the last uh, seven or eight years. It's really uh, a sport unlike any other, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, actually, we're heading to Bermuda in January. I, uh, I took a hiatus after running three halves in Bermuda and uh, had a setback in 21 and 22, but the comeback is always greater than the setback. So my next running journey is going to be in Bermuda in January. So thank you, Brendan. I'll be following along. Thank you for listening to the AdaptX podcast. Our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use. And if you would like to learn more about Adaptex, the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on, you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website, www.adaptex.org. Until next Monday.